Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Stuart Alexander, also known as the Sausage King. But first, your true crime headlines. The body of a Florida woman who had been missing for six years was found in a discarded freezer at a scrap metal warehouse. Heather Ann Lacey was 30 years old when she disappeared in 2013 from Deerfield Beach, Florida. At the time of her disappearance, she had been living on the streets and was addicted to drugs, but she had consistently maintained contact with her family, including her two children, who were being cared for by a relative. When both Thanksgiving and Christmas passed without Lacey making contact with her family, her father filed a missing persons report. He searched the area where she had last been seen, but was unable to find her or any clues to her whereabouts. Then, in February of this year, a 36-year-old man named Jonathan S. Carzaga died in his apartment in Hollywood, Florida. After his death, the building's property manager hired a company to remove the appliances from his apartment, including an upright freezer, in which Lacey's body was later discovered. The appliances were taken to a scrap metal warehouse, where they sat for about a month before a foul smell caused a warehouse worker to open the freezer. Investigators are now trying to determine if Lacey and Escarzaga knew each other and how long her body was in the freezer. In Chicago, police have arrested three people in connection with the murder of a nine-months pregnant woman. Police believe that 46-year-old Clarissa Figueroa masterminded the crime. In October of last year, Figueroa announced on her Facebook page that she was pregnant and that she was due in May. Friends and family were shocked by the news since Figueroa had previously had her tubes tied. But the woman insisted that it was true and shared an ultrasound photo of the baby that she was supposedly carrying and the nursery that they had prepared ahead of his arrival. It was Facebook that connected Figueroa to the young mother who would become her victim, 19-year-old Marlon Ochoa Lopez. The young woman was married, had a three-year-old son, and was due to give birth to another son in May. She met Clarissa Figueroa in a Facebook group called Help a Mother Out, which is an online forum where families in need can sell, donate, or trade items with each other. Figueroa lured Ochoa Lopez to her home on April 23rd with the promise of a stroller and some baby clothes. Once she was inside their home, Clarissa and her daughter, 24-year-old Desiree Figueroa, distracted the young woman by showing her pictures in a photo album. As Marlene sat on the sofa looking at the photos, Clarissa Figueroa walked behind her, wrapped a cable around her neck, and strangled the young mother. Ochoa Lopez fought for her life, grabbing the cable as it tightened around her neck, but Desiree Figueroa peeled away her fingers one by one as her mother continued to apply pressure to the cable. Once they had killed Marlene Ochoa Lopez, Clarissa Figueroa took a knife and sliced open her abdomen, removing the child that she was carrying. They concealed the body in a trash bag and placed it behind the home and then called 911 to ask for assistance with the baby, who Clarissa Figueroa claimed to have just given birth to herself and who was not breathing. The gravely injured baby was rushed to the hospital and placed in the neonatal intensive care unit. Clarissa started a GoFundMe page for the newborn, who she was passing off as her own child. 
The GoFundMe requested money to pay for funeral expenses for the baby who was not expected to survive. The first break in the case came after one of Marlene Ochoa Lopez's friends showed police the Facebook interactions between her and Figueroa. Subsequent DNA testing of the baby showed that it was not Figueroa's. When detectives searched the Figueroa home, they found Marlene Ochoa Lopez's body concealed in a trash bin next to the garage. During interrogation, Desiree Figueroa confessed to her role in the killing. She and her mother were each charged with one count of first-degree murder and one count of aggravated battery to a child under 13, resulting in permanent disability for the harm done to Ochoa Lopez's son. Clarissa's boyfriend was also charged with concealment of a homicide. All three are being held without bond. Zachary Whitman, who was convicted of his younger brother's murder more than 20 years ago, was released on parole this week. Zachary Whitman was found guilty of the 1998 stabbing death of his 13-year-old brother Gregory Whitman. Zachary, who was 15 at the time of the murder, steadfastly maintained his innocence. He was tried as an adult, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In 2016, the United States Supreme Court made retroactive their 2012 decision that juvenile life without parole sentences were unconstitutional, clearing the way for Whitman to be resentenced. During resentencing discussions, it was revealed that Whitman's original attorney had rejected a pretrial plea deal and had not disclosed that deal to Whitman. Because of this, a judge vacated Whitman's conviction in 2018 and granted him a new trial. At that time, prosecutors offered him a deal that would make him eligible for parole in 2019 in exchange for pleading guilty to third-degree murder. Whitman accepted the deal and confessed to his brother's murder after more than two decades of insisting that he was innocent. He says that the boys got into an argument after he hung up on Greg's girlfriend and that he grabbed a penknife planning to scare his little brother, but did not intend to kill him. Gregory Whitman was stabbed more than six dozen times and nearly decapitated. Zachary Whitman, now 36 years old, was granted parole in January of this year and released from prison on Tuesday. Police in Detroit have arrested a registered sex offender and career criminal for the torture and murder of a young woman whose body was found in a dumpster last week. 27-year-old Elizabeth Candace Laird's body was found in a dumpster by investigators after someone called to report blood in the elevator of a nearby apartment building. Laird had been seen getting into that elevator the previous evening with a man who is now charged with her murder, 50-year-old James Cockerham. It is not believed that the two knew each other, and investigators are trying to determine how Cockerham gained access to the gated building. At his arraignment earlier this week, Cockerham entered a plea of not guilty to charges of first-degree premeditated murder, torture, and unlawful imprisonment. He is being held without bond and will be back in court at the end of this month. Those are your true crime headlines. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app and follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. 
At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy! Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's story, a sausage factory owner's vendetta against meat inspectors ends in brutal murder. This is the story of Stuart Alexander, the Sausage King. Our story takes place at the Santos Linguisa factory located in San Leandro, California. The factory had been a thriving family business since 1921, when it was first built by great-aunt Pia Santos and her husband Antonio. The Alexander family could trace their cultural heritage all the way back to Portugal, the home of the Linguisa sausage. For years, the factory had been run by Herman Tweedy Alexander. Tweedy Alexander was something of a celebrity in the local community. In San Leandro, everyone knew about the Linguisa Sausage Factory and the family who ran it. Over time, Tweedy earned the nickname the Sausage King, thanks to the delicious products he and his family made for over half a century. Stuart Alexander was the middle child of three sons of Shirley May and Tweedy Alexander and was next in line to inherit the Sausage King's throne after the death of his older brother Stefan, who died at the young age of 18 in a tragic motorcycle accident. Tweedy, however, had little faith in Stuart's ability to take over the family business. As he tried to train his son for the task, he was verbally abusive, often telling Stuart that he would never amount to anything. By all accounts, Tweedy was at times overly demanding with his young son, and according to his mother, yelled at him all the time, especially when at the factory during the summers and weekends young Stuart would make a mistake. This, and the breakup of his parents' marriage in 1971, helped to cultivate a deep-seated anger and resentment that often manifested violently in interactions with other people from an early age. Stuart eventually took over operations at the factory. He was proud of his family's products and worked hard, those who knew Stuart at the time remember him as having a short fuse and a combative personality. It was not uncommon for Stuart to threaten people. Growing up in his father's shadow, he developed a reputation for making death threats against those who angered him. Tweedy Alexander cast a long shadow over Stuart. Perhaps the reason that Stuart worked so hard was that he was always seeking the approval of his father even after Tweedy died in May of 1993. That deep psychological desire to prove himself and to succeed in the family business seemed to be one of Stewart's most driving characteristics. Stewart developed an anti-authority streak. Being raised by Tweedy Alexander could not have been easy. The anger and abuse from a primary caregiver and authority figure seemed to leave a big impression on Stewart. In 1996, 
Stewart was charged with beating Clifford Berg, 75, an elderly neighbor, after an argument. One person who owned a printing shop near the factory said that Alexander didn't like the idea of people telling him what to do with his business. Whenever Stewart came up against any kind of authority, his natural instinct was to fight back. Even when he finally became the Sausage King, Stewart was struggling to live up to his father's legacy. But the quality of the product and the excellent institution that Tweedy had built over the years kept making money. The community had come to accept the passing of the torch between generations. Stuart Alexander took on the title of the Sausage King, and this success brought a lot of cachet in the local community. As the owner of one of the oldest and most successful factories in the city, Stuart had a lot of political capital. Stuart tried to parlay this into a run for political office, running for mayor of San Leandro in 1998, but failing to win the election. His campaign was targeted, he believed, against the federal oversight which always sent the meat compliance officers to his factory. Amid his financial success and busy work schedule, Stewart began dating a number of women. One woman, an insurance claims agent named Eve Elder, dated Stewart for a number of years. The more time they spent together, the more she noticed Stewart's strange habits and propensity for violence. In what had started out as a joke, the couple invented a series of short stories, one titled Sausage Sniffers Found Sauced, which painted a description of the inspectors drowning in vats of secret sauce. Another girlfriend, Charlotte Knapp, remembered how Stuart would launch into profanity-laden rants about the meat inspectors. The language he used shocked her. But his violent reactions weren't just limited to the meat inspectors. Anyone who Stewart perceived to be interfering with his work was considered a trespasser. Stewart developed a habit for chasing these trespassers from his factory, shouting and swearing at them as they ran. On one occasion, he brandished a gun. Stewart kept several firearms in the drawer in his office desk. Charlotte was shocked. Stewart would often keep emails and letters from the meat compliance officers mockingly harassing him and show them to his secretary and his mother. Over time, four particular inspectors drew the brunt of Stewart's ire. He became increasingly irritated and antagonistic. These four inspectors were regularly assigned to routinely inspect the factory operations in terms of cooking temperature, cleanliness, and other health concerns. Stewart felt that he was being harassed and that inspectors were interfering with the way his sausage was best made and had always been made by his family. By requiring that the sausage be smoked at 140 degrees Fahrenheit, which was a state and USDA requirement, Stewart smoked them at 144 degrees and said that the decreased cooking temperature would shrink the sausage size, thereby reducing the cost at which he could sell them. There were also regulations about the type of smoker that could be used. Stewart's had been deemed antiquated and outdated. And at least two times, the inspectors had the factory shut down, only for Stewart to reopen the factory illegally. Stewart, who had already been in trouble for his spending habits, was plunging himself and the family business deeper and deeper into debt. The factory closures the change of machinery, 
and his own terrible decisions were costing a great deal of money. Stewart took out bank loans to try and alleviate the problem, but to no avail. The once thriving, now illegally operating factory was now losing more and more money. Stewart was beginning to lose all control over his life, driven mad by what he considered a campaign of harassment by the authorities. But the Sausage King would not give up the fight. Stewart's response was to work even more, to drive himself harder and harder in pursuit of success. Perhaps it was his determination to prove himself to his now deceased father, or perhaps he was driven insane by the battle against the authorities. But Stewart began to lose composure. His relationships fell apart, and his family who tried to help him were driven further and further away. At one point, Stewart decided to hang a sign outside the factory. To all of our great customers, the sign read, the USDA is coming into our plant harassing my employees and me, making it impossible to make our great product. Gee, if all meat plants could be in business for 79 years without one complaint, the meat inspectors would not have jobs. Therefore, we are taking legal action against them. But the sign did nothing to stop the problems with the business. On June 21st, 2000, the four meat inspectors arrived again at the factory. Jean Hillary, age 56, Tom Quadros, 52, Bill Shalene, 57, and Earl Willis, 51. The inspectors went to the factory to serve him with notice of more violations, including mislabeling of meat products and shipping uninspected meat across state lines for sale. Bill Shalene was the state inspector, brought in by the others to oversee what was quickly becoming the most difficult inspection in San Leandro. The Sausage King's reputation preceded him, and they expected trouble in dealing with the 39-year-old Stuart Alexander. The inspectors arrived at the factory and, as usual, Stuart began to shout at them, trying to run them off. He claimed that they were harassing him and that they were unfair in targeting his factory. The inspectors knew about Stuart's violent tendencies. When Stuart appeared at the entrance and screamed at the inspectors, they called the police. Stuart refused to let the inspectors inside. Even though his factory had been ordered to shut down, it was clearly operating which the inspectors would immediately confirm upon entering. The San Leandro police treated the call as a routine matter. How serious could a meat inspection dispute be? At the same time, Stewart stormed back into his factory and placed his own 911 call. He claimed that the inspectors were harassing him and trespassing on his property. The police also treated this call as low priority. In the time that Stuart had been waging war against the inspectors, he had installed a series of cameras all over his factory. Stuart's aim was to catch the inspectors trespassing on his property. With video evidence, he would be able to prove that he was being harassed. The CCTV rolled as both Stuart and the inspectors faced off against one another. Both sides had called the police, who were yet to arrive. The inspectors wanted to again shut the factory down, but Stewart was desperate to keep it open. Finally, the inspectors decided to enter. The four inspectors walked into the factory, prepared to conduct their inspection. They were met by Stewart. Though they knew he was furious, the inspectors were disturbed by how calm Stewart now seemed. 
he had stopped shouting and screaming. He watched them walk into the factory. As they began their inspection, Stuart went into his office. The inspectors went about their business. They examined the clearly operating factory and began to work through the usual checklist of violations, preparing a survey of everything that Stuart was not up to code on. Then the office door opened. Stuart burst out onto the factory floor with a gun. He started firing, spraying bullets in the direction of the inspectors. Jean Hillary, Thomas Quadros, and William Shalene were fatally hit. They fell to the factory floor, dying. California State Inspector Earl Willis reacted faster. He ducked under the spray of bullets. With the sound of gunshots echoing around the factory, Earl ran for the exit and managed to escape into a nearby bank as Stuart chased after him down the block. Earl didn't dare look back over his shoulder. If he had, he would have seen the looming figure of the Sausage King. Stuart was charging down the street trying to catch the one inspector who had escaped his wrath. He aimed his gun and fired, trying to hit him. The chase was miraculously recorded on camcorder by the proprietor of one of the nearby businesses. After Stewart's failed attempt to shoot Willis, he went back to his factory and emptied three more shots into the heads of the dying inspectors, ensuring that they were dead. His cameras were still rolling, but rather than capturing the inspectors trespassing on his property, they had captured the Sausage King committing murder. The police would finally arrive upon the scene within a few minutes after Earl pleaded with someone at the bank to call the police. They would arrive to find the Sausage King standing in front of his factory, unarmed, hands in the air, confessing to the murders and surrendering to be taken into custody. I'm the one you're looking for, he told one officer. Take me to jail. The six-month trial of Stuart Alexander began in May of 2004, the prosecution introduced damning forensic evidence which included the video surveillance tape which recorded the events from the time the meat inspectors were waiting in the office lobby for the police, who never came, until the shooting of the three inspectors at point-blank range. Stewart had unwittingly sealed his fate when he installed the cameras in his factory. The prosecutors also introduced the camcorder footage of the chase of Inspector Willis when he escaped to the bank. The prosecutors hoped to show signs of premeditation, even introducing the secret sauce story that Stuart and his ex-girlfriend Eve had written together several years before the murders. The defense attorneys attempted an insanity plea and were hoping at least for a second-degree murder conviction in an effort to escape the death penalty if Stuart were convicted. They introduced the harassing emails and official letters from the inspectors hoping to paint a picture of the murders as a moment of blind rage. Stewart's public defender said that he lost his temper and killed the inspectors after prolonged harassment. Stuart Alexander committed terrible crimes. There's no question of that, the lawyer said. There's no question he did a terrible thing that can't be excused, that can't be forgiven. He added that the inspectors taunted, pushed and provoked Stuart Alexander until he was blind with rage. They knew he was volatile. They knew he was upset. They knew he was on the edge. Stuart Alexander killed them, 
He hated them, plain and simple. John Quadros, whose brother Tom was one of the victims and attended every day of the six-month trial, said these excuses amounted to a blame-the-victim defense. The defense case was about devaluing the lives of the victims and blaming them, he said. But thankfully, the jury saw through that. On October 19, 2004, the Sausage King was found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder. Stewart did not react, but the verdicts drew gasps and tears from families of the slain inspectors. This validates the lives of the victims, said John Quadros. Stuart Alexander, age 43, was sentenced to death by lethal injection on February 15, 2005, and was sent to death row at San Quentin Prison. But he wasn't there long. Over the four years that he had been in custody, Stewart put on a staggering 80 pounds. This extreme weight gain led to a string of health problems, eventually resulting in a pulmonary embolism. The Sausage King died on December 27, 2005. The factory, located at 1745 Washington Avenue, was shut down, sold, and converted into a nightclub by the new owners. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app and follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.